Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. I'll read along, starting in Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's holy and inerrant and living word. Let's go to him in prayer and ask for his grace in our time. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself so clearly, so powerfully. And Lord, we pray now for this time that your word would do its work within our midst. Apply it to our lives by your spirit and make us to be your people, holy and obedient. Give us here a vision of Christ so that we might leave here not only more encouraged, Father, more faithful as we cling to him and him alone. Father, we pray that Your Word would convict us of sin. In those areas of our lives, we need to confess. Father, help us. Father, encourage us to find our rest in Jesus. Glorify Yourself now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Since day one of the fall, we've been seeing this throughout Genesis, God has been at work redeeming to Himself an untold multitude of people, an elect whom God would call His own. Out of fallen humanity, we see God working to restore to Himself a faithful remnant, a particular people of whom ultimately they would all be conformed into the image of the Son of God. This is the grand story of Scripture, the end for which God will be most glorified. And this story is a long one. Many parts and plot twists and developments. And we've been 
following the beginning, the genesis of that story as we've been working through this book, Genesis. It would seem that as we've approached Genesis 15, though, the Lord's promise to Abram of offspring, well, perhaps it's contradicting Abraham's experience. God had said that Abram would become a great nation, and through that nation, God would bless the world. And still, as of yet, Abram remained childless. As we saw last week, Abram's mind wandered. Did that mean that his servant Eliezer would be the intended heir of promise? If you remember, God's promise to Abram back in chapter 12 consisted of two main parts, a people and a place, a lineage and a land. And so far in the narrative, Abram has neither. But last week we saw in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, God's reassurance to Abram that even though he was well past the age of having children, God's promise would not fail. He told Abram to look up at the night sky and to count the stars even if he could. You will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, said God. And so Abram... He continued to believe God. And the text tells us that God counted Abram's faith as righteousness there in verse 6. He credited to Abram a righteous standing on account of his faith. This week, as we examine the second half of chapter 15, we will see God reassure Abram about the second part of that promise, a land. And in fact, we will see God establish this promise in the form of a covenant. All that was promised back in chapter 12 is now being established here covenantally in chapter 15. John Salehammer makes, I think, a striking connection here between the language that God uses in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, a phrase which is used as a kind of introduction to this covenant he's about to make, and the same language being used at the beginning of the covenant God will make with Moses and Israel on top of Mount Sinai, where there, again, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is interesting because we see the two most formative events in Jewish history prefaced with the same kind of language. God bringing His people out of the land to bring them into a new land. I think the point of the preface is clear enough, it's reminding us, the readers, that it is God who is doing the redemptive work. He brings His people to Himself. He saves. He gives land. And as we'll see in the rest of this chapter, He keeps covenant promises. The connection seen here between this covenant with Abram and that future covenant God will make with Israel isn't just seen in the same language Jews of God bringing His people out. It's actually explicitly made in the reference to the 400 years of bondage that Abraham's seed must undergo until the Exodus event. Do you see that there in verses 13 and 14? Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Moses is intentionally drawing us in as readers to make these cross-covenantal connections. But why? I think Moses wants to remind his readers, 
specifically the original Jewish audience who experienced the Exodus and who would have been reading this for the first time, well, that God has been working out His redemptive purposes from the beginning. God's ordered history of redemption didn't start with Moses and the Jewish Exodus. Now, that's just one part of a grander story, a a, a bigger picture, something God's been working out, well, from before the foundation of the world. In one sense, Moses is connecting Israel's purpose and the larger story of God's cosmic purposes. So here, God reminds Abram of his promised purpose. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Perhaps Abram, thinking back to the picture God gave him of the stars in the sky and and knowing that God likes to reassure us in His promises, well, perhaps that leads to verse 8, asking the question, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see what he's doing here? This is... This is him seeking assurance. This is a a believing question. A question which seeks to dig deeper into God's purposes and and become more rooted in His promises. I think it's quite a bit like the apostles and how they responded to Jesus in Mark 9, 24. I believe, Lord, but but help my unbelief. I believe, but, but I want to believe more. Well, look at how God responds. I think what happens next is one of the most beautiful and mystifying scenes in all of Scripture. First, we see the covenant prepared. We see a covenant prepared. Look there in verse 9 and following. God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. I think that's probably because they were too small. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, Abram understood exactly what God was ordering him to do here because this custom was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Whenever a covenant promise was made between two or more parties, the ritual which established the covenant agreement between the two parties was taking animals, say a donkey or or some goats, killing them, dividing the animals into two halves in such a way that it made a kind of a pathway, animal parts on this side and animal parts on that side, for the two covenanting parties to walk down the middle of this bloody path hand in hand. What this ceremony did was dramatize and declare a kind of self-imposed curse should either party break the covenant oath. It's as if they were saying, as as we walk between these dead and divided animals, if, if I break this covenant, may I become like these severed animals myself. Here, God is ordering Abram to prepare for this dramatized oath, this covenant to take place. It is, as O. Palmer Robertson described it, a bond of blood sovereignly administered. What we see happen next is truly mystifying. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This deep and dreadful sleep seems to signify, I think, the close presence of Yahweh. 
A similar darkness befell the whole of Mount Sinai when God was present there and made His covenant there. And it's no coincidence that when the new covenant was cut in Jesus' death upon the cross, what happened there? But the land fell dark above the crucifix. But why a deep sleep? As we'll see, it'll be because of how God wants to enact this covenant. But it is interesting to note that God has already done this in Genesis. Do you remember? Back in the beginning of Genesis when God put Adam into a deep sleep in order to establish the covenant of marriage? God would form Eve out of Adam's rib, and in their covenant of marriage, they would have dominion over the land and be a blessing to the earth. Here, God will promise Abram a land, and from his descendants, bless the entire earth. Indeed, both instances, I think, point forward to the deep sleep that God the Father would cause his divine Son to undergo upon the cross. When Adam fell into a deep sleep, his side was pierced and a bride was born. When Abraham fell into a deep sleep, a redeemed and peculiar people would be born. But when Christ was put into the sleep of death, from his pierced side came a bride, the church, and in his death, this church, God's peculiar people, would find final and eternal redemption. Both instances point forward, I think, beautifully to the covenant enacted in Christ upon the cross. Now that the covenant ritual has been prepared, God in His presence has put Abram into a deep sleep. Well, now in verses 12 through 16, we see the covenant promised. We see the covenant promised. And look at the details of this grand promise. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. First, God starts off with the bad news. But really, it's good news, right? Because it's a clear prophecy which is meant to invoke trust in the God who is over all history. Do you see that? God gives Abram a, a glimpse into the future, a future which he controls in every detail and promises that, yes, you will have a people, but they must first be sojourners in a foreign land, Egypt. They'll be slaves there and afflicted there for 400 years in foreign Egypt. Oh, what's fascinating here is that this might explain what's going on back up in verse 11. Remember there where Moses describes Abram as kind of shooing away the birds of prey? Why does he add that bit of detail? The Israelites will undergo affliction in Egypt. But in the end, it's clear God will protect them and bring them out. The Egyptian god Horus was a falcon, a bird of prey. So perhaps the image here is of God protecting Abram's descendants from the Egyptians, that bird of prey, precisely because of the covenant promise here. The amazing thing that we see here is that God is God over history. That's the point. And he works, sure, from our perspective, slowly and meticulously through history. Uh, to him, a thousand years is as one day. But he's timeless. He's unchanging. 
He's eternal. He's omniscient. He not only sees all simultaneously, but He also sustains all time and controls all time and pervades every cause and effect throughout all time simultaneously. Here is a God we can trust in because He is a God over all time. His timing is not our timing, but His timing is perfect. What will be next year, every high and every low, individually and as a church, None of it is outside of His control. And in His goodness and in His wisdom, we can trust, we can know that God works in and through all time for our good. Just a word here at verse 16. The timing to bring the Jews out of captivity and back into the promised land based on the fact that, what does he say, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete? What's going on there? Here we see a statement of God's patience. The Amorites were a people who inhabited Canaan, and to be sure, they were a wicked people. Their primary goddesses were uh, Astarte, or Ashtaroth, Anath, and Asherah. These were primarily goddesses of sex and violence. Sex was at the center of their cultural heritage. Leviticus 18 warns uh, the incoming Jewish nation to not act like the Amorites, which included in their practices things like incest, adultery, child sacrifice, all kinds of perversions, bestiality, on and on. And then he goes on to conclude, God saying this, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. So what we see then is that God, who is God over all time, is also God over all peoples and all nations. There ultimately would come a day when the Amorites had reached the point of no return. Their cup would be full. And God in His providential purposes would bring wrath upon them in and through the Israelites He was bringing out of Egypt. Thus, if you read through the book of Joshua and Israel's conquest of Canaan, Well, you're also reading there God's divine judgment upon the Amorites and all the other wicked nations. Now, to be sure, the emphasis here in Genesis 15, I think, is upon God's patience with the Amorites, not just His divine wrath. For 400 years, God will wait for them to turn back. Paul picks up on this in his statement in Romans 2.4. He applies it to us when he says, Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and His patience, not knowing that God's kindness, that God's patience, is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, God is patient. Immediate sin demands immediate judgment. But God holds out. He waits, waits for our repentance. But His patience is not unmitigated forgiveness. Don't confuse His patience for His forgiveness. No, His patience is meant to lead you to repentance. And if people do not repent, then God's patience will, in time, at a certain point, turn into judgment. Does God judge nations today? We have no reason to deny that He does. I think He does. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. 
And peoples and nations are still the same wicked people that we've been since the fall of Adam, even here in this nation. Now, what we don't have, we don't have any revelation from God on what constitutes his wrath here and now. So we want to be very careful to say that this tsunami or this disaster or that event is God's judgment. We don't have that scripture verse. But it is clear that God's patience is still present and that he is still calling people to repent and that there will come a day when he will judge all nations and all people who have not yet repented and turned to trust in Jesus Christ will undergo unending judgment. God's prophecy here was to encourage Abram and to strengthen him in his faith regarding the truth that the land would one day go to his descendants. Perhaps Abram was accustomed to looking around the land and and witnessing the decadence and immorality of the Amorites around him, seeing how that they lived long, happy lives. They didn't suffer or worry about anything. And perhaps he was tempted to think, like the writer of Psalm 73, am I following after God for nothing? What am I getting out of my faithfulness? They're unfaithful and wicked, and they enjoy life. I still live in a tent. I have no children. I own no land. Trial after trial. Perhaps you can connect with Abram's worry here. But here was God's promise which would teach Abram an important principle, a principle that we see throughout the Scriptures, that there is no glory without the cross. In God's economy, suffering always precedes glory. Or as Paul himself put it, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 This principle is true for us today. Even when we experience the blessings of God in great measure here and now, the best is always yet to come. This is not our best life now. But this principle, this reality, should always put our, our present sufferings in their proper context. This world is not our home. This world is where we're called upon to exercise faith and to be tested in and through trials and to wait in hope for God and the promises that will come. Suffering here is the path of discipleship and preparation for our lives and glory there. And even though Abram would die in peace, God's great promise to him and, and Abram's great hope was ultimately on the other side of the grave. In this life, Abram would face trial after trial. We'll see this again next week. Abram faces another trial. Author of Hebrews reminds us this as well, uh, well with Abram. Abram, he says, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. He looked forward to a better country that is a heavenly one, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here, in Genesis 15, asleep under the dreadful darkness of God's presence, Abram took in all these varied details of God's prophetic future. The covenantal ritual was prepared. The prophetic details of the covenant were promised. And now lastly, in verses 17 through 21, we see the covenant established. We see the covenant established. And what a surprise we see. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made or established a covenant with Abram. God's presence is seen here 
in the theophany of a smoking fire pot, glowing hot in the darkness of night, and a flaming torch. Here was a visual manifestation of God's presence. The early Jewish readers would have recognized this as God's presence because they had seen the same phenomenon. Moses saw God's presence in a burning bush. Israel would see this at Mount Sinai when they stood at the foot of the mountain where fire came down out of heaven and consumed the mountain while the smoke of it went up. God Himself would lead Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and the cloud of fire by night. Here were God's two legs, as it were, a pillar of fire and a column of smoke. God Himself preparing to walk down the pathway of these divided animals. The immensity of what's happening here cannot be exaggerated. How could God Himself, He who is and has the fullness of life and existence in Himself, the God who is pure actuality, how could He walk this pathway of curse, this pathway of death? And even more so, He didn't allow Abram to walk with Him. Here was God walking through the covenant corridor alone. Here was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God was declaring that if He were to break His promises and not keep this oath, that He would be butchered just as these sacrificial animals were slaughtered and divided. As Kent Hughes says it, it was an acted-out curse, a divine self-imprecation, guaranteeing that Abram's descendants would inherit the land or else God would die, and God cannot die. This one-sided covenant depended entirely upon God. Do you see how amazing this is? God, the ever-living I Am. God, the full life in and of Himself, was saying, I would rather be personally torn apart than see my relationship with humanity broken or give up on my purposes for Adam's race. What a profound display of love this is. Perhaps the only more vivid display would be if the acted-out sign became a reality. If the divine God of all creation, I don't know, took on human nature and actually tasted death, actually becoming the sacrificial lamb and undergoing the curse of death in the place of covenant-breaking children, would that not be a more vivid display of an awesome God? Indeed, this is ultimately what did happen, and this is what this passage points us to. The God who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, so that in his death, in that curse upon the cross, we might be partakers of God's covenant promises. On the cross, God took on himself the full burden of making the covenant effective. In spite of our weaknesses, despite our sins and our failures, God's purposes would not be thwarted. And Jesus Christ, God himself, bore the punishment of being torn apart He was whipped until he was unrecognizable, nailed to hang upon the cross naked, and punctured by a spear so that his lifeblood emptied out. And this was the fuller and I think consummate picture of what's being displayed here in Genesis 15. Uh, the, The picture here, the theophany as we see here of the two columns walking through was only but a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus upon the cross. As God in Theophany walked barefoot through the bloodied path of sacrificial animals, we see, as it were, a a kind of dress rehearsal for the better sacrifice to come. At this moment, we see God's pronouncement of death upon His Son. 
What I am doing here, Jesus, you will do in history thousands of years down the road. Just as God walked through this bloody sacrifice alone, so too would the Son of God die alone upon a cross. He is our covenant surety, our salvation, our hope. The faithfulness of what will be is entirely upon Him. Notice at the end here, as God walked through the solemn oath oath of sacrificial animals, He declared all that was to be inhabited by Abraham's descendants. He says, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It was a a large swath of land reaching from the river Euphrates in the east all the way to the river of Egypt in the west. What's striking about this promise is that it is the same rivers which demarcated the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 2. In other words, here was God linking His promise here to Abram with the larger story of redemptive purposes which He had been working out since the beginning in Eden. God will return a people He can call His own back to Eden where they will again walk with God and know Him and serve Him. That larger picture, or that grander story is still being played out today. Friends, we who are the descendants of Abram by faith, we look forward to God bringing us back to Eden. What Revelation refers to as that garden city, there where in Revelation 21 and 22 we see the tree of life will forever stand and all who are in Christ will have eternal access to it and out of the tree will flow the river of life bringing healing to all the nations. Fellow Christians, Paul tells us if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. By God's word, you are his offspring, his people. And the same land that Abram looked forward to now awaits you as well. In Christ, the, the physical and the spiritual, they become one. The type becomes the reality. As Abram was given a vision of God walking alone through the sacrificial curse of the covenant oath, and that vision bolstered his faith. And so now do we have a great, great vision, a better vision, a vision of Christ, our sacrificial lamb. We see it when we partake of the Lord's Supper together. We see it when we look around at the unified body of Christ. We see it when we behold the gospel in the Bible. A vision of Christ, the God who became man and died on our behalf. And I I pray that as we leave here this morning, that Christ would continue to be our assuring vision. Uh, The one we hold to in faith and in hope looking forward to the promises that are still ours. As we're going to sing soon, Christ and Christ only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. He is high King of heaven. He is our victory one. And may we reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. He is heart of our own heart, whatever befall. So I pray Christ would still be our vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray.